Welcome to NACE Clinical Highlights. I am Dr. Alana Morris, the Director of Heart Failure Research and Associate Professor of Medicine at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. This is the first episode in a three-part series on recent updates in managing heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, or HEFPEF, and what you really need to know now. Joining me is my friend and colleague, Dr. Beacom Boskert. Dr. Boskert is the Mary and Gordon Kane Chair in Cardiology, Director at the Winter Center for Heart Failure Research, Vice Chair of the Department of Medicine, and Professor at Baylor College of Medicine. She is also the Medicine Chief at the Michael E. DeBakey VA Medical Center in Houston, Texas. Dr. Boskert served as the President of the Heart Failure Society of America from 2019 to 2020, led the Universal Definition and Classification of Heart Failure Consensus Document as the Chair in 2021, and served as Vice Chair of the 2022 AHA ACC Heart Failure Guidelines Writing Committee. We are so honored to have you join us today, Beacom. Thank you, Alana. So in this first podcast, we're going to review the new universal definition of heart failure and how it can be applied in the clinic. Beacom, to get us started, can you tell us why a new definition of heart failure was needed? Um, thank you for that introduction. First and foremost, there was a clear need for standardization of the definition. The textbook definition of heart failure, which traditionally termed heart failure as inability of the heart to meet the metabolic demands of the body, was not practical and was not applicable to most of our patients. This textbook definition probably would characterize very advanced heart failure patients with tissue level hypoperfusion, but as you are aware, this is not manifest in most of our patients and thus would not be applicable to the majority of the heart failure population. The second reason was that we were seeing significant gaps and disparities in timely recognition and treatment of heart failure. Despite the uh, expanding um, evidence by clinical trials and numerous guidelines, there was lack of uniformity and increasing complexity for treatment of heart failure. Definitions used in the guidelines not only differed from the textbook, they also differed amongst themselves. Some of the guidelines focus on symptoms and signs. Some of them focus on hemodynamic characterizations such as low cardiac index or elevated uh, filling pressures, which as you know, are not practically measured in most of our patients. And there were also very concerning trends in the last two decades uh, from real world patients showing lack of improvement in the use of ACE inhibitors, beta blockers, mineral receptor antagonists amongst indicated patients. And uh, these uh, pretty much clarified, underlined the necessity for us to standardize uh, treatment. We also recognize that care and coverage results uh, relies on uh, appropriate coding. And uh, currently the ICD coding unfortunately represents a chaos, representing terminologies from the academic as well as um, encounters of care portfolio. We have terminologies such as systolic combined with diastolic or acute on chronic. And uh, we certainly don't have specific uh, coding for 
pre-heart failure like pre-cancer does, and our definitions traditionally lacked objective criteria, which have been commonly utilized in other disease states, which made uh, their recognition and treatments so much more easier to uh, be understood by non-specialists and by patients. For example, EGFR for chronic kidney disease or hemoglobin A1C for diabetes. And I think it was clear that we truly needed the standardization of the definition as one of the first steps to achieve uniformity in care. Yeah, that's a lot, Beacom. So, I mean, clearly a new definition was needed to help standardize care um, with a definition that provided adequate sensitivity and specificity, as well as empowered clinicians um, and helped formulate a definition that could facilitate change in coding as well as harmonize with the guidelines. So what can you tell us about this new definition that is really essential for primary care clinicians to understand? The new definition has three components. And the first component is the symptoms and signs by themselves would not provide appropriate specificity. As you know, the symptoms and signs can also be seen in the context of lung disease, chronic kidney disease, or a variety of other cardiac conditions. The second component is attribution to cardiac abnormality. Again, by itself, meaning just having abnormal cardiac function is not adequate to characterize heart failure either because the patients may remain asymptomatic for a long period of time. The third component is the objective findings of elevated filling pressures, either by elevated nitrogen peptide levels or hemodynamic characterization. Again, by themselves, the nitrogen peptides would not be adequate to diagnose heart failure because they could be elevated in the setting of chronic kidney disease or with advanced age or uh, with comorbidities such as atrial fibrillation. So these three components are critically important to uh, combine. And in the universal definition, we summarize it as Heart failure is a clinical syndrome with current or prior symptoms and or signs attributed to cardiac abnormality and corroborated by objective evidence of increased feeling pressures, such as elevated natural peptide levels or elevated feeling pressures by diagnostic modalities, such as imaging and or hemodynamic measurements at rest or with provocation. Keep in mind that cardiac abnormality can be structural or functional. It can be identified by abnormal ejection fraction, abnormal cardiac chamber enlargement, abnormal diastolic function, uh, uh, or valvular abnormalities, or moderate to severe ventricular hypertrophy. By themselves, cardiac abnormality would not be adequate to diagnose the heart failure syndrome. As I mentioned, patients may remain asymptomatic for many years. The biomarkers implicated in the heart failure, such as elevated natural peptides or cardiac troponin, especially in the setting of exposure to cardiotoxins, is also important to add specificity to the diagnosis. By themselves, they would not be adequate. So this definition is simple and practical, um, incorporates symptoms, signs, attribution to cardiac abnormality and corroboration by either elevated natric peptide levels or elevated filling pressures uh, by imaging and or hemodynamic measurements and provides adequate sensitivity and specificity. It seems that the new universal definition also includes a revision of the ACCAHA heart failure stages. Uh, stages. 
Can you walk us through these new stages and help us understand why they were developed and what is particularly relevant for practicing clinicians to understand about these new stages? The revised stages are quite important. The previous American Heart Association and American College of Cardiology stages A through D were used and understood by specialists, but was not widely adopted by non-specialists or understood by patients. For example, cancer stages and pre-cancer is uh, clearly understood by our patients and general practitioners, but stages A through D were not clear for our patients and non-specialists. The other important reason was we now have advances in the ability to diagnose higher risk patients for future development of heart failure with objective biomarkers, even before they develop symptomatic heart failure. This provides us an opportunity to treat and prevent heart failure. Therefore, the new stages terminologies were developed with an intent to recognize the earlier stages, and we revise the terminologies to simpler um, uh, uses and um, text, text uh, terminologies for it to be better understood by patients and non-specialists. In the new scheme, we define the stages as the following. At risk for heart failure for former stage A, which identifies patients who are at risk for heart failure, but without current symptoms and or signs, or without structural or functional or biomarker abnormality. This category includes patients with comorbidities such as hypertension, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, obesity, or those with family history of cardiomyopathies. Pre-heart failure for former stage B, these are patients without current or prior signs or symptoms of heart failure, but those who have either structural or functional cardiac abnormality or elevated abnormal cardiac biomarkers such as natriuretic peptides or cardiac troponin in the setting of exposure to cardiotoxins. Heart failure for former stage C for patients who are symptomatic uh, or with signs of heart failure um, uh, that's attributable to cardiac abnormality and advanced heart failure for former stage D. Uh, one of the goals for developing the new stages was to help clinicians identify the patients who have pre-heart failure, much like pre-cancer or pre-diabetes, so they can intervene to prevent the new onset of heart failure in the future. And clinical studies such as STOP-HF have demonstrated that prevention of heart failure and development of cardiac dysfunction is possible. When patients at risk for heart failure are screened by natriuretic peptides and are referred to multidisciplinary care when their levels are elevated, future development of heart failure or cardiac dysfunction can be prevented. These findings actually resulted in a class two recommendation in the most recent 2017 AHA ACC guidelines for screening for heart failure with natriuretic peptides followed by team-based care, including a cardiovascular specialist can be helpful to prevent development of cardiac dysfunction or new onset of heart failure. Beacom, I think the analogy to screening for pre-cancer or pre-diabetes is extremely useful um, as clinicians are used to looking for these conditions or even sort of screening for coronary disease and understand that appropriate intervention can actually prevent the development of cancer or diabetes, but we don't necessarily think about preventing heart failure. So I think this is really a paradigm shift that's so important. 
Um, I understand the universal definition also includes new classifications of heart failure by ejection fraction. Can you teach us these new ejection fraction classifications? Sure. The new ejection fraction classifications add the categories of mildly reduced ejection fraction and improved ejection fraction to the formerly existing classifications of heart failure with reduced ejection fraction and heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Mildly reduced ejection fraction is defined as EF between 41 and 49%. The category of the mildly reduced EF is quite important because emerging data suggests a role for certain therapies in these patients. Post-hoc analyses of studies with ARNI, ARB, ACE inhibitors, or mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists have demonstrated benefits extending to such patients with mildly reduced EF, and the recent prospective randomized study with SGLT2 inhibition, the Emperor Preserve trial demonstrated a significant benefit in patients with EF over 40%, including patients with mildly reduced EF and preserved EF. Heart failure with improved EF is defined by an increase in EF by at least 10 points from a baseline EF that is less than or equal to 40%. This is important because these patients are not the same as the patients with preserved EF and need to be continued on guideline-directed therapies. So what are some of the strategies for implementing these new definitions? What do clinicians need to know? Um, I would like to state that these are very exciting times for heart failure. We uh, envision the clinicians to use the universal definition of heart failure to confirm a diagnosis of heart failure identify the appropriate stages and classifications of heart failure and communicate clearly with their patients and what these definitions meet for them, mean for them. And the use for uh, guideline-directed therapy can be matched to the appropriate stages of heart failure, including patients who are at risk for heart failure or who have pre-heart failure. Remember now that prevention is now a realistic and central goal of screening and therapy. Patients should be periodically re-evaluated according to the universal definition of heart failure as patients respond to treatment or experience progression of disease, and they should be reclassified to redefine and optimize treatment. Uh, patients who progress to more advanced heart failure according to the universal definition of heart failure should be referred to a heart failure specialist. Patients who achieve remission of heart failure with total resolution of their symptoms or signs or normalization of their LV function should not be termed as recovered heart failure. They should be termed as remission, in remission, because these individuals require continuation of guideline-directed therapy to ensure that they do not have relapse in their disease. We also would like to emphasize to use persistent heart failure rather than stable heart failure uh, among patients who continue to have symptoms. Stable terminology unfortunately causes inertia and false presumption of improvement or stability. Us using stable terminology would be similar to using stable cancer in active cancer patients. Patients with persistent heart failure should have optimization of guideline-directed therapies. Well, Beacom, I've learned a ton, and I want to thank you for taking the time to speak with me and share your expertise on heart failure and help us begin to understand heart failure differently to reflect updated guidelines. I think you provided some great information to our colleagues today. 
Thank you, Alana, for the opportunity to disseminate the guideline-directed therapy importance, as well as a universal definition of heart failure in standardization of our practice. If you are interested in learning more about the evolving management of HEFPEF, join us for the second part of my discussion with Dr. Javid Butler, titled HEFPEF, New Data and Evolving Strategies. You can also go to the NACE website at naceonline.com and register for any of our other enduring activities on heart failure or any other program we have developed. Please like us on Facebook at NACE CME to be part of our online social media community and get access to other content and programs we share. Finally, I want to thank you, our audience, for joining us for this podcast. I hope you have learned something new you can bring back to your practice, and we look forward to having you join us for other upcoming podcasts in the future.